Father, we are thankful for the privilege of coming to you now in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to have you speak to us, Lord, through your word now. But before we enter into that realm, Lord, we, we do ask for your hand to touch Betty Diaz's mother in hospital today as she's battling these complications with her diabetes and pneumonia and even affecting her kidneys, Lord, we ask that you would touch her in the power of your Holy Spirit and in your healing power, Lord, to bring her through this, uh, this ordeal that she's going through physically. Be with her father spiritually and strengthen her, Lord, and be with Betty and her family as, as they are there uh, with her and lending that uh, presence and support uh, that uh, a family only can. And we ask, Lord, that in, in all of this, you will be honored and glorified and give great testimony of your power and grace. We pray for Dan, Maria, and Lorraine. We ask that you would bless them in their, in their time of, of having dealt with this devastation of their home. And we, we pray that you will... Um, uh, Lord, continue to encourage and strengthen their lives, Lord, uh, as they uh, continue to trust you. And I know that they do. And I thank you, Lord God, for their faith. And I thank you for their, uh, the, the resolve that they have, Lord, to see this through for your glory and honor. So we lift them up to you now. And we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit so that we may know your word and understand it as it is uh, presented to us today. We ask you, Lord God, that you will speak, Lord, uh, directly to our hearts, encourage us, teach us, and then, Lord God, help us to apply these truths to our lives, not just today, but every day until that great day of Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Very quickly, we had a wonderfully successful Vacation Bible School this week. I want to thank all of those of you that, uh, that helped out in, in such a, a wonderful, wonderful time uh, that the kids had. And uh, they, uh, their uh, Vacation Bible School was actually based upon our studies in the book of Genesis. And, and uh, it, was, it was a great time. I, I love some of their songs. One of their songs says, uh, there are no monkeys in my family tree. That was a pretty good one. I liked that one. And so uh, they had a good time uh, with, with all of that. But uh, we do want to thank all of you that uh, participated in it. We uh, have gone up again in, in, in the uh, enrollment. Uh, uh, we averaged over 250 kids this time. Uh, last year was about 200. This time to about 250. Well, about between 250 and all. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing... Uh, uh, the enrollment even go up more next time. Uh, should the Lord tarry, we will do that. Genesis chapter 3. Let's turn there. I bet you all knew that already though, right? We've been in Genesis chapter 3. Now this is going to be our third week in the first five verses. But we're going to add two more just so that you'll realize we are moving a little bit forward. So Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 will be our reading this morning. And uh, then we're going to be looking at some more specific things that were said in this particular uh, passage. 
Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. As we have learned from the very beginning of our studies in the book of Genesis, from its very name, we know it to be the book of beginnings. It has revealed to us the beginning of the universe, the beginning of mankind, created in the image of God. It has shown us the beginning of marriage according to God's pattern between a man and a woman. And it has also showed us the beginnings of temptation and sin, which brings to mind a story that I've probably shared with you all before, but here it is again. A woman was married to a miserly man. She had to fight for everything that she got. He was pretty tight, you know, with the money. So one day she told her husband that she was going to go window shopping. And he said to her, look, but don't buy. Just look, don't buy. And a few hours later, she, she came home with a new dress. The husband looked and he said, well, what is this? I thought I told you to look, but not buy. Well, she explained, I saw this lovely dress and thought I'd try it on. And when I did, the devil said, it sure looks good on you. The husband said, well, right then and there, you should have told him, get thee behind me, Satan. And she answered him. She said, I did. But when he got behind me, he said, it sure looks good from back here, too. Now, sometimes we can find temptation amusing until it destroys us. Until it destroys us. I've read that Niagara Falls plummets some 180 feet at the American and Horseshoe Falls. And before the the falls, there are violent, turbulent rapids. Farther upstream, however, where the river's uh, current flows more gently, boats are able to navigate. And just before the Welland River empties into the Niagara, a pedestrian walkway spans the river. Now, posted on this bridge's pylons is a warning for all the boaters. And the warning says, Do you have an anchor? Followed by, Do you know how to use it? 
Do you have an anchor? And do you know how to use it? I want you to remember those questions today because I'm going to ask them again at the end of this study. But these are good questions to keep in mind as we continue our study of this passage today, especially as it pertains to the temptations that we keep on facing on a daily basis. Thanks to the introduction of temptation and sin into the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden, as we've already seen in the past couple of weeks that we've studied these first five verses. Now up to this point, we have noted that sin didn't begin on earth. Remember, sin didn't begin on earth. It actually began in heaven. We discovered that the mystery of iniquity didn't originate in the heart of a human being. But in the bosom of an angelic being of the highest order that rebelled against the Most High God because he wanted to be like the Most High God and was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels that rebelled with this spirit being, the one that would eventually use the body of a serpent in the garden. And I want to have you consider, if you will, these verses as, as a point of not only review, but of reference. Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4. For it points out some of the things that I've just mentioned and we've already looked at. But it says here, There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. And I, <coughs> excuse me, I mention this because that uh, uh, phrase, the third part of uh, the stars of heaven, is really symbolic uh, and figurative of of uh, the angels that were cast out with uh, Lucifer at that time. Because stars uh, are, are symbols, actually, or uh, the, the figures of, uh, in, in the figurative language of the scriptures, at this point at least, of, of the angels. And it says, and he did cast them to the earth. So we know that real stars didn't get cast to the earth because they would have destroyed the earth. So we realize it's figurative language and it's and symbolic in that sense. Uh, and so we move on to Isaiah chapter 14. We, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago uh, very carefully because it is here that we see the mention of a person named Lucifer, uh, son of the morning, Lucifer meaning light bearer. We're told in verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And so we see of this one character named Lucifer that is cast out of heaven because he has arisen in his pride before God to be like God and against God. And then Ezekiel 28 verse 14, again two week, a couple of weeks ago or the uh, message from uh, before that uh, he was indeed an angel and it says here, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth and I have set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God that has walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And so beyond just the prophetic language that was used uh, concerning the king of Tyre and the king of, of Babylon, uh, or Babylon and Tyre, being that we started with Isaiah and went to Ezekiel. 
nonetheless, we, we, we saw that it was also a prophecy of, against the uh, very source of these particular kings. And that, of course, would be Satan. And now we move on to the scriptures identifying the serpent. And again, for the purposes of our understanding who this serpent is or what the serpent is. And in Revelation 12, verse 9, again, uh, verse 9, it says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent. So that identification tells us here in the book of Revelation that that old serpent is called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So now we have the full picture of all, uh, of, the, of all the players, as it were. And then in verse, tw- uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2, just again to, supl- to support this understanding, it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him. A thousand years. So now we know who the player is. Now we know who this is in the garden that has caused all of these troubles. And uh, last week I outlined the general plan of attack of Satan with these three points. And uh, the first point, of course, is doubt. We spent a little time last week dealing with this issue of doubt. And doubt is found, the doubt that he uh, interjects into, uh, into the mind of Eve is found in verse 1 of Genesis 3, where it says, He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. In other words, did God really say that? Did he really say that? You know, bringing forth the understanding that, you know, maybe God didn't. You'll also notice that Satan is very good at, at scripture twisting. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Doubt is going to lead to denial. Denial is found in verse 4, where the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. So first doubt is put into the mind. Then comes what? The denial. Oh, God didn't say that. You're not going to die. If he said you're going to die, you're not going to die, which also makes God what? A liar. Satan is calling God a liar. So once doubt gets in, and denial uh, it triggers more doubt. Then comes the delusion and the desire. That's found in verse 5. Actually, the delusion is found in verse 5. He says uh, there, the serpent says, For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, if, if God is holding back on you and he's telling you lies and it's really not going to be true that you're going to die, then guess what? You know what? He doesn't want you to be like him. So the, the delusion is you can be just like God if you eat the fruit. And you'll know good and evil. Obviously, the good God that you thought you knew is really not a good God. He's a bad God because he's keeping things from you. You see how Satan works. Guess what? He's still working that way today. Still working that way today. His methods haven't changed. We're going to add some, some things to this delusion and desire toward the end. Last week we also narrowed the scope to Satan's three-pronged attack, beginning with doubt. The three-pronged attack was he challenged the authority of God's word through doubt. He challenged the accuracy of God's word through denial. And he challenged the acceptability of God's word in the delusion. So we touched upon these issues, uh, of course, last time. 
Now, our focus for the rest of our study will be on the woman's responses to the serpent. What Eve was saying when they got into this discussion. With the understanding that the scriptures are very clear that Adam, the first man, was also the first sinner. As the Apostle Paul stated in Romans 5.12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So God is saying through Paul, Adam is the responsible one. Adam and his sin. Now we're, we're, we're moving toward that understanding, but we have to deal with what we see here in the first five verses. So now generally speaking, Eve, when she discusses these things with the serpent, Eve both subtracted from and added to God's word. This is what we should be concerned about. What she said to the serpent. She both subtracted from and added to God's word. In effect, what she did was that she subtracted from God's goodness and then added to God's government. She subtracted from his goodness and added to God's government. In other words, added more than what God had said about how he deals with things. And we'll see in just a moment. Let me, let me read verses 1 through 3 again to explain this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you've really studied these things in the last few weeks as we've been dealing with these issues, you probably may be asking these same questions. So hopefully we answer those questions. You see, Satan's cunning is seen in his taking this affirming and constructive statement of the Lord's, which we find, by the way, God telling Adam in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree. Now I want you to notice what God says here. Of every tree, every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Freely eat. You can have everything that you want, anything that you want from every tree except one. Notice the next verse. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So that's pretty clear. That's pretty plain. One tree, don't, don't eat from that tree. But, actually, every other tree. You can eat from it and eat freely from it. And guess what? In all of those other trees, there's one other tree there that we know about. What is it called? The tree of life. If you eat of that tree, but, you know, God doesn't tell them that. That's an interesting thing. We'll maybe talk about that later. But in the midst of all of those trees that they can eat from, the tree of life is there. And we've talked about the tree of life. We know not only what the tree of life is, but who the tree of life is. All right. So you get the picture. What does Satan do? He takes that affirming and constructive statement that is made. You can eat freely of all the trees, except for the one. And then he rephrases it. Notice, he rephrases it in an unconstructive, pessimistic way, if you will. Did God really say that he won't let you eat of every tree? Did you notice the twist? 
Did God really say that he won't let you eat of every tree? See, again, look at the, look at the wording. Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree. What do you think the answer should have been? Oh, hold on a minute, Mr. Serpent. God said we can eat of every tree. And not only of every tree, we can eat every tree freely, except this one. That would have been the answer. But that's not what she does. Now, Eve's first mistake. Well, the first mistake was carrying on a discussion with this serpent devil, who ultimately turns out to be the father of all lies. Because if we are allowed anything to say to the enemy of our souls, it is what we are taught in the letter of Jude to say to him. And it tells us in Jude verse 9, um, yet Mark of the archangel contending, uh, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring any uh, against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. And that would have been the thing to say to him. You know what? The Lord rebuke you. He twisted the scripture. And, and she feels obligated now to answer. Now, I want you to notice she didn't answer well. What should that tell us right now? That, tell, that should tell us right now that we need to love God's word so much that we get into God's word, but never to misquote it. Never to misunderstand it. Always to know it right. That's why it's important to us to go verse by verse, make sure we know what God's word says. So the first thing that Eve omitted, because we said that she omitted and she also added, but the first thing that Eve omitted or subtracted or left out from what the Lord initially said was that he allowed them to eat freely, freely, freely from every tree. Because when God says that he allows us to eat freely, what is he saying about himself? What is he saying about himself? God is a gracious God. But she doesn't mention that. She doesn't say that. So in essence, it makes God out to be less than gracious. I, I don't ever want my conversation to make God less than the gracious God that he is. God is always good. God is always gracious. God is always merciful. God is always love. God is always truth. God is always righteous. God is always holy, holy, holy. We need never to lessen the character of God. But she does. In essence, by not saying that he, that he gave freely for them to eat, that makes God out to be less than gracious. So Jesus was very clear when he told his disciples and us that the Father is more than gracious when he said to us in Matthew 10 verse 8, Freely you have received, freely give. As you have freely received from me, you freely give. So freely is such an important word here. But she omits it. The second mistake that Eve made was, was adding to the command. Because she said, listen, uh, she said, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, neither shall you touch it. God never said that. She added that. Neither shall you touch it. So she added the command not to touch the fruit. God never said that. And this would appear to be in direct con uh, contradiction to the command that the Lord gave Adam 
to tend the garden. You go back and read it in chapter 2, when God is speaking to Adam, he says, you know, I want you to be in the garden, I want you to tend it. Well, listen, you can't tend unless you touch. How do you tend if you can't touch it? Well, you know. You can tend and touch. He just said, just don't eat of that one tree. You can probably even touch the fruit, but you can't, can't eat it. Just that one tree. So what would you do? Well, you know, if God doesn't want me to touch that tree, I'll go and touch all the other ones and eat the, of the, all the other ones. But there is no restriction from touching. She made God's command seem exceptionally harsh, and if I may say, legalistic. Some of you from the late 60s, early 70s remember the song, uh, Signs, Sign, Everywhere Signs. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? Who remembers that song? Come on. Oh, you hippies out there. Okay. All right. Do this, don't do that. Can't touch this. Can't touch that. You know, whatever. That's a modern song. I don't know. MC Hammer, okay. All right. Can't touch this. Well, you know, God never said that. See, we, we, you know, we, we're legalistic sometimes. We turn that way. We've got to help God out. Lord, you should have told us not to touch the thing. What, it is, what does it do? It, it constitutes adding the doctrines of men to the word of God. It constitutes adding the doctrines of men to the word of God. Well, Jesus had something to say about that too. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 7 and following, he said, You hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, notice, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's the first time we see the commandment of men mentioned, because it definitely was not the commandment of God. Eve's third mistake now. I know I'm kind of going a little quick here, but I think there are obvious things. Eve's third mistake was changing the meaning of dying from what the Lord had stated. You see, again, let me, let me just read that portion that she had said. But of the, free, the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God didn't say it that way, did he? On the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die, is what he said. So even lest you die is not quite right. But when he said, lest, uh, on the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die, that is significant. But it's even more significant than how we hear it in the English. Because you see in the Hebrew, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it is actually a phrase that is made up of the same word spoken twice. The same word spoken twice. In other words, that little phrase that you saw, surely die. You shall surely die. Those two words, surely die. When you look those up in a Hebrew concordance, an interlinear concordance, you realize they're the same word. And the word in the Hebrew for death or die is the word muth. M-O-O-T-H or M-U-W-T-H. Muth or mut. Mut, mut is the way it's written in the Hebrew. Mut, mut. Now, to understand that, rather than to understand just one statement of the, of the word mut, 
is that when he says mut mut there, or is written that way, he's saying literally, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. Because it specifies the beginning of dying. The process of dying would have begun physically. And Adam and Eve would eventually return to the dust, as we will see later in Genesis 3.19. When God speaks to the man, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. It's process. Dying you shall die. The process of dying begins at the very moment that they eat of the fruit. What happens? The perfect environment, the perfect world that we've talked about. God controlling all of the laws really up to that point. Now, when man begins to die, what takes place? The second law of thermodynamics begins and things begin to wear out. And guess what? No evolution. Just everything beginning to die. Everything beginning to wear out, wear away. You see how important it is to understand the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, we're going all the way back to January. It's been that long since we studied this. We'll have to have a little review here pretty soon. But the point of the matter is this. They begin to die. The process, everything begins to change in the world. We'll see that as we move on. But if the Lord would have wanted them to die right then, on the spot, Genesis 2.17 would have used mut only once. Because to use the word only once means to do so in an absolute sense, not in the gradual sense. There is a technical term called the ingressive sense, which means mut mut means it is ingressive or gradual, as it were. It continues to move in that direction toward ultimate death. But one thing is also for sure, on the day that they, eat, they ate of that fruit, they died spiritually. Right then and there, they did die spiritually. That was not gradual. They died spiritually. Why? Because their eyes were open. And they were shamed. So, Eve altered God's word to appear even harsher by saying that they would die immediately. But what is even more interesting and significant is that the clever and cunning serpent argued against her own incorrect words by using God's phrase in verse 4. You shall not surely die, the, the enemy said. Isn't that interesting? This is how much he plays with our minds. You say black, I'll say white. You say white, I'll say black. You say black, I'll say white. You say, no, but you know what? Once you say white, I'll say black. Do you understand? That's how good he is at what he does. In twisting the scriptures. So he says, well, listen, you're not going to begin to die. Get it right. Because she didn't have it right. So let me mention a couple of things that I hadn't stated earlier. Eve had adopted the serpent's reduction of God's name by calling him God instead of the Lord God. We have realized the, the name of God being of great importance. The creator God is known as the Lord God. His name, of course, is uh, brought out in the, three, in the four letters, uh, the Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. We call it Yahweh, some call it Jehovah. But nonetheless, that is his name, God, Adonai, uh, Elohim, actually, uh, is the... Is the 
the, the plurality of the word being the, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God, nonetheless, uh, they just call him God. But Satan, that's Satan's plan. He doesn't honor God as the Most High God. But what does Eve do? She speaks of God, the Creator, the one who made her out of the rib of Adam, in the same terminology as the enemy. I mean, this may not seem of great importance, but it does reflect Satan's disrespect for the Most High God that he sought to be like. People today, listen, people today reduce God to some kind of a buddy. You know, we call him the man upstairs, when we must always remember that he is the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, knowing that there is no one like him. God is God and no one is like him. We should worship him in respect, in awe, and reverence. Never has there been one like him and never will there be one like him. Listen to what God says of himself in Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 13. He says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no stranger, strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Or, which means, who shall reverse what I do? Who can reverse what God does? There's no one or no thing that can reverse what God does. Now, the other point that needs to be mentioned is that when stating which tree they were not to eat of, she didn't even call it by name. We all know what the name of that tree is, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's all say it together. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ah, I'm so glad you're awake. Glad you're awake. She didn't even know what to call it. I mean, what did she say? It was the tree in the midst of the garden. I'm a little suspicious there. God makes some things very clear to us for us to know. But Satan is always keen to these things. Obviously, accuracy was no longer important in the discussion. But we need to be accurate with God's word. Satan's keen with all of these things. I want, I want to throw out some questions that, 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 we can, that we can say kind of developed, not to say in these words, but in, in the understanding of what Satan was doing with Eve. Listen, listen to these things. These, are, these would be quotes. I'm not saying that they are, I'm just saying think about it. Satan saying to Eve, did God really say those things? Did God really say those things? I, I mean, how do you even know it's the word of God? How do you even know? He already caught her, right? When he, she said, God didn't say that you were going to die immediately because he said, you will not surely die. You will not die. You know, begin to die. He already caught her in not understanding the word. So he says, how do you even know it's the word of God? How do you know that God even said it? After all, you weren't even there when he said it. Remember who did he say it to? He said it to Adam. Oh, by the way, where is Adam? Anybody know yet? We haven't seen Adam yet. We'll get to him in just a moment. So what is it telling us? The first attack, doubt God's accuracy. 
doubt his accuracy. And then consider denial now. Consider some of the things that he might have said. You're not going to die or even begin to die. He's a liar. That God you say you created you, he's a liar. I mean, who are you going to believe? God or me? Who are you going to believe? I'm talking straight to you. You know, God didn't even talk to you. He talked to Adam first. Who are you going to believe? What about delusion? The serpent starts saying, listen, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, you shall be as God himself. You haven't proven to have a, a whole lot of wisdom, but uh, your eyes will be open. And, and, then, and then you can dazzle that husband of yours with your newfound knowledge. I'm sure that would have been pretty attractive to Eve. What was the result of all of this? The result was this. In a very simple way, let me just say that the result of all of this was that ignorance gave way to conscience. Now, you might say, well, that shouldn't be too bad. Well, let's think about it. Ignorance gave way to conscience. Now, we all have consciences. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. We have a conscience to know what is good and what is evil. The problem is, because we are born into sin, as the Bible teaches us, we gravitate toward the wicked conscience. The Bible is very clear about these things. And even if we might not gravitate toward them, having a choice most of the time, if not all of the time, we choose to go in what appears, what seems to be better for us. You see, living in the innocence of the garden brings up a, a, a question that is very hard for any of us to understand because we live in a fallen world and we live in a, in a, in a cursed world. So we cannot understand the, you know, the, the value of innocence as God made Adam and Eve initially. The innocence of trusting God for all good, for trusting God in all that he says, in all that he does. Because even today, as much as we want to trust God as believers in Jesus Christ, those who have been changed into the image of Christ and is, are being changed daily into the image of Christ, we still struggle with temptations. We still struggle with those things that the enemy is throwing out in front of us to draw us away from walking right with God. So it's hard for us to understand then that pure innocence. But notice what happens. Because it wasn't such a good bargain to receive conscience if they had that full blown trust in God. Now, look at verses 6 and 7. Because this really is the indicator of what I was trying to explain. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she looked. You ever want to remember the, the, the bad things that happened in the garden? Just remember, look and took. 
She looked and she took. Okay, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Oh, welcome, Adam. Good to have you here. Where you been all this time? Was he away? Or was he there? Why was he silent? Huh. The eyes of them both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Later on, of course, we know that they were ashamed. Where did shame come from? Before, they had no shame. They lived in the innocence of God's perfect creation. So let's add something to delusion and desire. Because these things happen today too. The delusion, you shall be as gods, you shall know good and evil, leads to desire. The desire now to say, hey, if he was such a good God, wouldn't he want me to know good and evil too? So I want that. So the desire leads to a decision. The decision. Well, let's see. God said, I can have all these trees, but this one tree, because of what the serpent has been telling me, Seems a little more beneficial. The desire led to disobedience. Doubt, denial, delusion, desire, decision, disobedience. For the whole of the human race, all of that became devastation. Eve surrendered to the serpent's temptation in exactly the way that the Apostle John illustrates in his first letter to the church when he writes in verse 16 of chapter 2, for all that is in the world... Notice what he says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Do, do, you, do you realize, Christian, do you realize as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that the world is destructive and the things in the world can be very destructive to the walk of a believer in Jesus Christ. And notice again how he puts it. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Keep that in mind and keep your finger here because we're going to come back to it. But first of all, Eve gave in to the lust of the flesh. She saw that the tree was good for food. What was she overlooking? The fruit of every tree that she could have eaten freely from in the garden. And she saw this one tree. 
And she saw that the tree was good for food. It, it looked just, oh, she was ready for it. It probably gave out a good odor, you know, good scent, you know, good fragrance, you know, something. Ooh, that smells good. Boy, it looks good, too. I can't wait to sink my teeth into that thing. It's like some of you thinking right now, sinking your teeth into a picadillo burrito here in just a minute. She saw that the tree was good for food, and then she gave in to the lust of the eyes because the tree and its fruit was pleasant to the eyes. Must have been beautiful. Isn't that the way that temptation begins? Makes me think about what the tree of life might have looked like in the garden. Just like Jesus was among the people that he didn't stand out because he had halos over his head or he glowed more than everybody else. He was just like everybody else. That this tree of life must have been just kind of a plain tree. Maybe it was even in the form of a cross. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it sure, sure was pleasant to the eyes. Just like most of the temptations that Satan throws at us. She finally gave in to the pride of life. It says the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. To be like God. That was the same pride of heaven. The same pride in heaven that Lucifer had. To be like the most high. She may have thought that she was doing something good for herself, but the Apostle Paul simply states that Eve was deceived when she sinned. 1 Timothy 2 verse 14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, men, before you think this is a good thing, you know, men are saying, oh, see, it's the woman. It was the woman's fault. Before you, get, before you go there, let me explain something to you. Let me put it into perspective. Adam was not deceived. He sinned with his eyes wide open. You know what? Because of his responsibility in having received God's word directly, his sin was more serious than Eve's. We'll deal with that more next time. He deliberately followed his heart into sin. Adam was responsible for the fall of man, for he was called to be the spiritual leader of his family, and he did not do his job. And thus, because of Adam, we see introduced into this world both spiritual and physical death. And as we read, Paul said, it was Adam that sinned. Right? Romans 5. Romans 5, verse... 12, whereas by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. Talking about Adam, not Eve. Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, speaking of Adam, the first Adam, for since by man came death, by man, the second Adam, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you see now why we need a Savior? Do you see now why we needed Jesus to come to this world? Why he needed to come and put on flesh and be that perfect 
Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, who would go to the cross for the sins of the world, because no man could do it, because we were all tainted with sin. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. One was the first Adam, the other is the second Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. One day, of course, the second Adam would come into the world. And he'd also have to face the temptations of the wicked one. We're going to begin there next time with with the temptations that Jesus went through and then tie that into where where Adam is in all of this. But but here's, here's something that you have to understand about Jesus. In Hebrews 4 verse 15 it says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, like as we are yet without sin. He was tempted. Jesus was tempted. The devil threw out, you know, he said, listen, if you're the son of God, you're out here in the wilderness, you're not eating anything and you look pretty miserable. You know what? You're the son of God. All you got to do is take a stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus uses the word of God and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Satan tempted it more and Jesus responded more with the word of God. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Listen, when we began our study in the book of Genesis, I said that if you believe the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, if you believe the first four words, in the beginning God, then you can believe every word that's in the Bible. You can especially believe John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The world is trying to tell you that the Bible is not true, that it's all kind of myth and legend and all of that kind of stuff. Listen, we know better. And even though Satan may try to twist the the word and twist things in our minds, we can stand just as Jesus did and say, the word of God lasts forever. Listen, turn to, go back to 1 John 2. I want to close with this very quickly here. We're almost running out of time. First John 2. Go back to verse 12. It's going to include what we read a little bit earlier, but listen, listen to what John is saying. He says, I write unto you little children, those who are just brand new believers in Jesus Christ. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. You know what people need to know the minute they come to the Lord that he is a forgiving God. And that your sins, whatever they were, however they were, whatever they could have been, were, were already taken care of on the cross. Your sins are forgiven. Quit bearing them on your backs as if you've got to carry them yourself. Jesus already carried them to the cross. You're forgiven, little children. I write unto you, fathers, those who are mature, older, because you have known him that is from the beginning. Get to know God. Get to know the creator of the heavens and the earth. Get to know his son, Jesus Christ. Know him personally. I write unto young men, young men with the fervor and the vision and the, and the passion for Christ. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Listen, that should be all of us here that love Jesus. We have overcome the wicked one, not by our works of righteousness, but everything that Jesus Christ has done for us. 
And then he goes on, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you. That's the key. The word of God needs to abide in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Now he says, love not the world. So what is our foundation when we face the world? We better have the word of God and know it and have it accurately known in our lives, our minds, and in our hearts. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, you see the same temptations that Eve faced, you face. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We have got to draw a line and stay on the side of God. I know people tell you, God's on your side. Well, you know what? That's fine, but you better be on God's side. Amen? You better be on God's side. And quit loving the things of this world. In the sense of the things that that Satan uses to try to draw us away from Jesus. He says... The world passes away, and the lust thereof. It's all going to pass away. It's all going to burn. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And what's the will of God? That you may know the one true and only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's his will for you. Do you know him? Let me ask you two more questions. Guess which ones they are. Do you have an anchor? Do you know how to use it? What is our anchor, folks? Our anchor and our hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our hope and our anchor is the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is the cross that Jesus took our sins to and died on that cross. It is the shed blood of Jesus, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. It is his death, dying, to take away all of the strength of sin and death. It is his resurrection overcoming sin and death. It is his ascension into the heavenly sanctuary for all who believe. That is our anchor. Everything that Jesus Christ did for you. Do you have an anchor? Do you know how to use it? Fall in love with Jesus Christ and fall in love with his word. Amen. Let's pray.